Washed Up Emo sponsors New Belgium Brewing are celebrating their 30th anniversary as a company. To celebrate, they're releasing Wild Ride Amber IPA, a happy tribute to their iconic fat tire. Even better, New Belgium Brewing are giving away bikes and gear all year. Find out more information by visiting newbelgium.com. Do you ever wonder if your favorite band is emo? Tired of being in the same conversation with friends? Not knowing if you're listening to post-hardcore, screamo, emo revival, emo emo violence, even ska. We're We're here here to to help. help. The Emo Council is here staffed and ready for any question you may have. Hey, Emo Council, just wondering if Green Day was considered an emo band. Thanks. Green Day is not an emo band. Okay. From the creators of Washed Up Emo, isthisbandemo.com offers the definitive answer to the only important question of your day. Hey, is this been emo? This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. What's up, everybody? I'm Toby Morrell from the Bad Christian Podcast, and I wanted to let you all know about the brand new Jabberjaw Media Block on Adobe Radio. Tune in every Thursday night from 5 to 8 p.m. to hear brand new episodes from the Modern Vinyl Podcast, as well as new episodes from one of my very favorite shows, Break It Down with Matt Carter. All you have to do is head to adobe.com, that's I-D-O-B-I.com, and tune in every Thursday night from 5 to 8 p.m. to hear some of your favorite Jabberjaw Media Podcasts on Adobe Radio. Welcome to episode 64 of the Washed Up Emo Podcast. Today, we welcome Stephen Hyden, a music critic you may know previously from AV Club and Grantland. He also hosts a podcast called Celebration Rock. Finally, Stephen is an author and has a book coming out May 17th called Your Favorite Band is Killing Me, where he explores 19 music rivalries and what they say about life. Stephen is a big fan of punk rock and independent music, and he was nice enough to spend an hour with us talking about his life and giving us a sneak peek into some of the book's themes. Finally... I reveal which artist will never, ever do the podcast. Uh, Please support if you like this by throwing up a review, following us on a social network, or just saying hello anytime at admin at washedupemo.com. Thanks and enjoy. Was Milwaukee the place to go for shows? Were you, you know, were you getting into the scene or was it like you're kind of just... Was it more of the mass market stuff? Um, not mass market. You were obviously into punk, but or like you know those kind of bands. But you know, did it start as punk rock, or did you're like, oh my god, this is on MTV, and now I'm going to learn everything? Yeah, I mean, I was definitely getting my music from MTV, uh, just because you know living in Appleton, you know, we had you know the Lawrence Station, I guess, and there was a couple fairly cool record stores, but I, I just, I, I, like, when I was 13, 14 years old, I just, I didn't really know anyone that was into cool bands or, you know, and I didn't really have any way to find out about it, so I was definitely, like, a grunge rock kid, you know, Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Michigan Pumpkins, all that alternative rock stuff, you know, I, I was the perfect age for that when that became the big thing in youth culture, um, 
So that was the big thing for me. When I got older and I started going to shows, yeah, Milwaukee would be the place, and in Madison too. But like, like one of the like one of the first kind of, I guess, big shows I went to. I, I mean, the, like the first real concert I went to is I saw the Rolling Stones at Camp Randall Stadium in Madison. Wow! In nineteen ninety, or like when I was sixteen, it was like right before I turned seventeen, and you know. I wanted to see them because I was already a big classic rock fan too. That classic rock and alternative rock were sort of like the parallel tracks that I was on as a music fan at that time. And I wanted to see the Stones because I assumed that that tour was going to be their, their last tour, you know, because I was like, well, these guys are like, they're 50 years old. They're not going to tour after this, you know, so I have to see them now. <laughs> and of course, you know, yeah, here right. we are 22 <laughs> years later and they're, you know, still out on the road. But, um, I remember going to see Rancid at, uh, in Milwaukee at the Rave Eagles ballroom. And that was like, uh, the outcome, the Wolves tour. Oh. And that was like the first show, like where, like I got into a pit and I got and I got like knocked down. I remember they came out and they played Maxwell Murder was the first song they played. And I remember standing, like me and my friends, like we went up to the front and um, I remember like my feet getting lifted like about six inches off the ground because people were so packed in tight up front and like just moving with this mass of people. Like, there wasn't a mosh pit. It was just, like, this mass of people moving back and forth. And, like, I had no control over my body. Like, I couldn't move. <laughs> I was doing this thing. And it was, like, terrifying and awesome. And after that, I kind of backed up a little bit <laughs> from the front. But it was a big show. And, like, you know, so that was sort of, like, one of the, you know, kind of first like punk shows I remember. I mean, the nineties were interesting. I mean, I wasn't, you know, like I was definitely kind of going with the trends in a lot of ways. Cause I remember like my friends loving, like my friends loved like operation Ivy and like no effects, Pennywise and all that kind of Southern California, uh, punk rock, um, along with like green day and the offspring. But you know, those bands, you know, one is cool because they were, you know, they're like on TV. Band. Yeah. They're on TV. Um, but then they had that, like that wave of Scott hands too, like that came out. That, that was a big thing, like by like the mid to late nineties. So you had, you know, real big fish and less than Jake and, you know, sort of heavy guitar punk Scott hands and you had like Goldfinger and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So I, I ended up going to shows like that. Like I wasn't as into that as my friends were, but I ended up going uh, just because they loved that stuff, and it ended up in the you know it ended up seeping into my consciousness because every time I would be in my friends' cars, they'd be playing that kind of stuff. Um, but I was always more of like, you know, like like by the mid nineties, I was like into brick pop. Like I, like, I was a huge Oasis fan, and I liked, uh, like, Supergrass and The Verve, and then, you know, like, Radiohead wasn't really a Britpop band, but, like, around the time of the band, like, they were, you know, sort of, you know, they, they had videos on MTV, but they weren't, like, they weren't big yet. So I was into stuff like that. 
Um, I mean, the, well, the, my friends were the punk stuff at that time. But, you know, but like Sunny Day Real Estate was another band I liked a lot then, too. And they, they were, they kind of bled. I always felt like they were sort of alt-rock, and they always seemed more alt-rock than punk to me, even though retrospectively, they're obviously this big emo touchstone band. Uh, and, of course, Weezer, too, being another band that I never in a million years at the time thought that they were an emo band. What, you know, like when, we, when the first record and Pinkerton came out. And it wasn't until, like, the Green Album came out in 2000 when I was like, oh, wow, okay, so Pinkerton is a is an emo record, apparently. You know, they kind of got that reputation retrospectively, or at least it seemed like... Because of how, yeah, yeah, because of how different it was. I mean, it's funny your 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 trajectory is the um, Washed Up Emo podcast demo, so you're perfect. And then also, I'm only <laughs> I'm I, I'm only a year away from you, so it was almost like, you know, I was if it was the Bad Religion show with Goldfinger, or I mean, all these shows you're mentioning, like my oh, roommate, yeah. my roommate was into Britpop, so that's how I got into it, you know, in college, and that's how I, you know, so it's it is interesting that those. And that time period too, which is one of the things I wanted to bring. You kind of mentioned the internet, and um, you know, with one of the passages, you, you were you were kind of talking about all those things that you saw in the '90s. If it was, you know, you were seeing Mel Gibson, or you were seeing like these things that you thought that were really bad, and then when you come to find out, it really wasn't that bad. And I think it was still this little special. Uh, like globe of there's only four or five places that you know, are we're getting our information from. There's only so many magazines, there's so many zines, and it was sort of protected. And I think when, you know, right. and that time period, that was it. That was the last time that that happened because, I mean, I got to college and there's this thing with a computer and you could do anything. And, uh, you know, we had insanely fast internet for that time and it was off to the races. Um, and yeah, it just, I mean, yeah, I always like, I always try to check myself if I, uh, speak like too rosily about that period because like if you had asked me when I was 14 if I could have a box in my house where I could just punch in the name of any record and I'd be able to hear it like instantly um, <laughs> if you would have told me that I, my brain would have exploded oh, you know, totally. I, that, was like, that was like a dream come true to me um, but you know and, and so, like, the fact that we have that now, I think, is it's an incredible thing. And I, I, overall, I think it's it's an improvement over the way things were oh, like yeah. when we were growing up. However, though, I mean, I remember, you know, there was, like, one cool... There, there was, like, one cool record store downtown where you would go to buy... Like, I, I, I started out buying tapes. So, like, I would go to this store. It was called New Frontier Record Exchange right off of College Avenue in Appleton. And it was run by this guy named Stan Erickson who looked like like Neil Young, um, you know, after, like, several, like, nights with no sleep. You know, like, like a rough-looking <laughs> Neil Young-type-looking guy. And, like, that's where I bought, like, my first Sex Pistols tape. That's where I bought, like, Velvet Underground Loaded. That's where I got, like, the Royal Albert Hall bootleg, the Bob Dylan bootleg where, you know, he gets booed and people yell Judas at him. Like, that, like, that was, that was, you know, that's released now, but before that was released, it was a bootleg and I bought it. He, he dubbed a tape of it for me. So, like, I'd go there to get stuff like that. And then there was this other record store 
where I would go to buy new stuff. And it was on the other side of town. And, like, before I had a driver's license, I'd have to ride my bike to go to the store. And it was, like, an hour, like, one way to get to the store. And, it, you know, I'd have to cross, like, several streets that had tons of traffic. And, you know, it was kind of scary, but it was like this Lord of the Rings, yeah. I, you know, quest to get records. And, um, I, you know, I remember going there and getting my first CDs ever, which were Check Your Head by the Beastie Boys and the single soundtrack. And, you know, writing an hour there, getting those, and deciding that those were the two CDs I wanted because it probably cost me 20 bucks like each. $30. Yeah, or 15 It was like $15 each or something. So, because um, I think it was, a, it was around my birthday. For some reason, I, I was flushed with cash, so... <laughs> I decided yeah, so I was there for a while so I had to decide that these were the two albums I wanted and then you know writing and I were home and like I didn't have a disc man or anything so I had to like imagine what these records sounded like like I knew the singles but I didn't from the records like the Alice in Chains song Wood I knew that was on the single soundtrack and I knew so what you want from Check Your Head like those videos were on MTV so I knew those songs but like I didn't know what else was on the records so I was like imagining what the records would sound like as I'm riding my bike home and then, you know, I get home and I, I just listened to those two CDs, like, for the rest of the day. And, um, you know, today, if I wanted to hear those albums, you know, it would take me, you know, I'd punch them into Spotify and I'd have them instantly. And I would have listened to both of them in the time it took me to ride one way to the record store, um, which is more convenient and it's better in a lot of ways. But there is something kind of romantic about that, like... I listened to, I mean, I bought both of those records. I mean, I had Check Your Head through Columbia BMG, you know, the the 12 CDs for a penny crap. I got the single soundtrack at the local store. And the thing thing I noticed is when you mentioned the single soundtrack, I remember the Smashing Pumpkins song, which was track 14 or whatever it was on the record. And and, And I didn't know Smashing Pumpkins. They were like one of the bands I didn't know on that record. And Gish... I guess it was out already, but I wasn't aware of Gish. So I only knew that song, and I was like... Because I was, I was focused on, like, the Pearl Jam songs and the Alice in Chains songs and the Soundgarden stuff, because like, I knew those bands. But then I was like, the Smashing Pumpkins, like, who's this? And that, it's this fucking amazing song. It's yeah, like one that, of the best songs. That song was so good. But I find funny about it is that I listened to the whole damn thing. And I, you know, yeah. you only had ten or twelve or twenty, or maybe your really rich friend had a hundred. But you, like, I just, I can tell you any point of the first Foo, Foo Fighters record. Like, I could do name that tune with that with that right. record. I can do name that tune with Check Your Head. You play. So I just, I think now there's that. You know, yes, you can have everything, but I, you know, it's. I mean, I actually listened to a record for the first time today, and I remembered that I did, and that's sad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know. I just think about reading record reviews, too, like how exciting it was if you got the new Spin or Rolling Stone or yeah, um, whatever magazine, and they had a review of a record that wasn't out yet, and how exciting it would be to be able to read this review because it was like the only link you had to the record. So then you'd read these you read these reviews and you would imagine what they sounded like. And like I remember reading like you know, I, well, 
uh, you know, all the all the articles about in utero before it came out. So, oh, totally. Like how you know this record was supposedly unlistenable, and and uh, how you know the record label didn't want to put it out, and you know, and all this and all this stuff that was like ended up being overstated, but. Um, you know, just waiting forever for it to come out. I met the, the, the other albums too. I, probably the most anticipated albums of my life. Like I will never look forward to albums like this ever again. Are the Usual Illusion albums? Oh yeah. Remember I remember. I just feel like I waited. I feel like I waited like ten years for those records to come out, even though it's like more like ten months. But like in my life at that time, it's seemed like I waited forever. And I remember, like, you know, the You, you Could Be Mine video came out. Uh, Mind blown. The, yeah, exactly. And the thing about that song is that it was in Terminator 2, which was, like, maybe the other pop culture artifact that I was looking forward to the most. Like, these Illusion albums and Terminator 2 were, like, the shit in my mind. And <laughs> this was, like, the ultimate in entertainment. So the fact that they were packaged together was just incredible. And, and you know, and you could be mine was this like kick ass song and it makes made you feel like, Oh, use your illusion albums okay, I can need these kick ass records and but then the records come out and they're like these kind of bloated, overlong, you know, proggy records with like ten minute like piano ballads on them and stuff and uh I love those albums now. I loved them when they came out. It was a long time I didn't love them and now I love them again. Just because I appreciate how rare those albums were for their own time, and how like there will never be another band that is so successful that they can put out two double albums on the same day. Like that just seems like the height of like insane extravagance, you know? Yeah. That uh, that they were allowed to do that. Um, I also think too. I remember I was at, at Tape World at at the mall, and I remember like. You know, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't get it. Like, a couple kids had it, you know, and then everyone just rips it from him, um, um, foreboding. Um, but then I just remember being at the tape world of the mall and watching kids debate because they only had so much money and you had to pick. So, and I think at one point, one of them had like the more popular song. And so, like, on the rack, it was like one of them was like yellow and one of them was blue. Whatever one was like more popular, there was like a shitload of blue ones. <laughs> Because everyone just went for like the one that had the single. I'll never forget that. Yeah, I'm trying to think. I feel like Usual Illusion Two, like debuted at number one, and maybe it was because You Could Be Mine was on Usual Illusion Two. Although I feel like by the time those albums were coming out, that Don't Cry was released as a single, and that was on the first one. Yes, yeah, Don't Cry was on the first one. Yeah, but I feel like Usual Illusion Two. Debuted ahead of the first one, maybe for the reason that you just said, because you could be mine was the first song that was released. Um, yeah, I still have. I had a debate recently with someone about which was the better User Illusion album. Um, oh, it looks like User Illusion Two was in fact oh because it had You Could Be Mine, so User Illusion yeah. Two was first. Yeah, yeah. There we go. Thanks. Even though that album, thanks, Internet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So. <laughs> I feel like Usual Illusion 1 is a little bit better than 2, but I don't know. I, I feel like 2 falls off after You Could Be Mine. Usual Illusion 1 had November Rain, Live and Let Die, yeah. Don't Cry. Just release those three songs and I'll give you $18. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> and the whole Rain, man, it's crazy because, again, you know, this, this arc I've had with those records where they came out and I loved them. And I loved them because I had to love them because I had looked forward to them for so long that to be disappointed by them, to allow myself to be let down, would have been too crushing. So like, I had to love them. It was the same thing like when Be Here Now came out, that Oasis record. Like, oh, totally. I had so much anticipation. I was like, no, this, this album's fucking great. And I don't care what anyone says because <laughs> I have to love it because being disappointed by this, like, I can't face that. But like, yeah, with the Usual Illusion albums, there was a long time where I couldn't like stand those albums. They just seemed like such a betrayal of what that original like kind of Guns N' Roses aesthetic was. But as an older, but at some point I came back around, and I really like listening to those records. I, it, it's funny because like when I I find that like with bands that I love and that I know really well, that I I tend to. Um, love the records that are the most sort of flawed just because like the great records you know i know those records by heart everyone loves those records and there's not really anything to discover there you know you're not going to be surprised by it but if you listen to a record that's a little bit deeper in the band's discography that people have dismissed that maybe even you yourself have dismissed there's a chance that you could put that record on and be in the right headspace and be totally blown away by it. Uh, or at least find a song on there that you really like. And I like that element of surprise. And I, so the, the, the sort of like, the misses tend to attract me more than the hits, I find. I think one record for definitely fans of this podcast, and I mean, we're going to mention a couple others. I mean, the for me, it was Sunny Day Real Estate's How It Feels to Be Something On. Um, you know, everyone goes to the first two records, but I went back to that one. I mean, I loved it when it came out and I saw the tour and I loved it, but that's the one I go back to now more than ever. Um, I think, I think that is the best and that I would put in the top 10% of like rock records in the nineties. I, I think that record is, is great. It sounds um, fucking huge still to this day. And it was I mean, they they had everything going on that tour, and the the way that they sort of presented the songs, and um, yeah, it was definitely. I, I if someone asked me to be on a podcast and talk about my favorite record, someone already picked Clarity by Jimmy Eat World, so I had to pick another. I picked that one. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, I I love that record. I mean, yeah, it, it, it's like Sunny Day Real Estate decided to be Led Zeppelin. Yeah, you know, and they and they made this fucking epic sounding record and uh i really love i i love the first two. i mean the, you know the, the i think the rising tide is great too that that's the tour i saw so the rising tide tour mm-hmm. um and uh, i like that record a lot i mean it's you know i uh, again that's another instance of a record where um i'm drawn to the subtext of it you know because it's like you know the end of the line yeah, you know, for the band, and you, you're always. It's always interesting to listen to records like that and play detective and try to like. Who is pissing off? You who? can hear the discord in the songs, or you, you know, and but I, I mean, I don't know a lot about Sunny about Sunny Day's history. I mean, they're still like an enigmatic band. I feel like in a lot of ways, I'd love to see a documentary on them or something because I, I mean, because I feel like Jeremy Enoch. 
you know, I, I tweeted this once. I, it's like, I feel like Jeremy, Jeremy Enig should get the love that Jeff Mangum gets, you know? Like, where people talk about Jeff Mangum being this sort of, like, reclusive genius, you know? And I like Neutral Milk Hotel. I like those records. But, like, to me, like, Enig is, like, you know, I, I put him above Mangum in, in the pantheon of, like, 90s guys, you know? It, it, just, like, what... He did, not just with Sunday Day Real Estate, but his solo record, The Return of the Frog Queen, which I think is a fucking great record. Um, and there's just so many, like, interesting things about him, you know, like his, the whole, like, religious aspect of what he does, and, like, that thing about how Sunny Day wouldn't, like, play outside of California for a long time, you know, just, like, weird, like, that's it, right? Like, or they yeah. would, you know, they, they would play, I couldn't... I get it mixed up sometimes where I can't remember if, if it's, they won't play California or they won't play outside of California. Oh, I can't remember either. Someone's probably yelling at us through the internet. Um, but yeah, it's it's one of those two things that there was like a, a a very hard line about something. I think it's like outside of California. But, um, you know, someone can tweet at us when this posts and yeah, correct us. But, you know, I just think like th- there's like this mythology about that band that I think is really interesting and and unexplored, I mean, yeah, I just don't know much about them. I'd like to know more. Or maybe I wouldn't. You know, maybe the mystery is part of what keeps me interested in that band. Yeah, the last time I saw them was, I think, Terminal... Oh, my God, I'm so bad with years now. Um, everything, I think, I think the year 2000 is yesterday still, so everything gets, gets blurred. But when I, they, they did a tour with the Jealous Sound, and it was like a little reunion, and it was fantastic, and... You know they played really well, and um, I got to meet some of them and talk and hang. And you know you could you could see tension, you could see that they were trying to enjoy it. I just think there was there's a lot of different personalities with them. Um, well, do you think that like the rest of the guys are pissed at, at Enig for being this sort of like eccentric genius who derailed the band as much as he like lifted them up because? It seems like they're one of those bands that should have been uh, bigger than they were. Oh, I, and I maybe worse than if they had kept it together. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't. I think there might have been some um, stuff with Dan. You know, with if if Dan Horner, obviously, um, you know, Goldsmith and and you know had had goofy stuff going on. Um, goofy meaning, you know, there's personal stuff that happens, and there's you know back and forth. I, I mean, again, I wasn't there. There's a lot of more people that are listening to this probably that are more versed in their history and know all the thing about them. But there was just this element of like everything's going to break at one moment. <laughs> like, well, if, if one of these experts is listening, like, please write a book. Like, I want to read a book on somebody in real estate or I will. Uh, I will say something right now. Or something. I will say something now on the podcast that I've been holding back on telling everybody, but it makes sense to tell now. There is one person that I always joke that we'll never do the podcast. It's Jeremy Enoch. He will never do it. Yeah. Um, he doesn't like the name, and I think that's part of it. It's that he doesn't want to be... Like, this word has affected so many people, and you know, even my own podcast name has affected someone from doing an interview because of the word. Is there is there a word out there... Um, other than you know things that are maybe aggra- you know um, uh, very very bad, but is there another genre that has such a crazy reaction where people run from it? <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, it, it, 
it's uh, it's. I mean, have you asked him? Like, do you notice for a fact that that's yes. why he won't do it? Yeah, or? there's actually a, there's 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 a couple mutual friends that have been awesome and have asked for me through a number of different channels. Actually, through the band, through management, through another mutual friend, they've been fantastic to ask directly and say, look, Tom's cool. Like, look at all the people he's done. Like this isn't, but there's, there's just something that he doesn't want to talk about it in that context. And I, you know what? I give him credit. If you don't want to talk about it in that context, you don't have to, this is not a, you know, you don't need to do it, but it's, it's, it's that word itself. I think that's the bigger concept of that. There's, there's people that as soon as, you know, I tweet about a band or or another or another article or another thing mentions emo. You know, they're quick to be like, "We're a rock band." <laughs> <laughs> and the only time that that didn't happen was when it was on MTV and super popular, and everyone wanted to sound like it. And and it's, I feel like didn't that era though? I feel like that era then subsequently like stigmatized it more like i feel like if that hadn't happened that maybe emo wouldn't have that connotation like i feel like the people at least now that don't like that word they don't like it because of like that early 2000s yeah exactly yeah it's the 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 issue being is that you ask your parents what they think it means and they're going to say you know, cutting or uh, or just a- ask a random person on the street. Oh, it means cutting. It means black hair. It means goth, which was for about two years, and then that was it. But because it was so popular, it sort of affected everyone that's a part of it. So from the 90s through today, there's still this interesting connotation to it. And I just didn't know. I mean, I obviously think about it constantly. But have you? There yeah. are there other things that I. I mean, have you thought or like? Is there? I mean, I do think about your book. I'm like, God. I wonder if there was there was going to be a chapter on you know emo because there's so many like correlations between something, um, like something being so hated. Yeah, Yet, I mean, you know, in my mind, I I tend to just think of it all as rock and roll music. So like. You know, it's funny because there is that side where people hate the word, and if any band is described as email, they like reflexively hate it. But then you get the other side where people just fucking love emo so much that they are super protective of the word. And if you describe a band as emo and they don't and they, and, you, and, they, and they don't think it's email, then they'll get really upset about it. Me. Um, you know, is that, is that you? Are you one of those people? I have a site called isthisbandemo.com. Oh, that's right. You know, it's funny because <laughs> the other day, I did this thing on Twitter. I got, okay, so the, other, so the other night, I got, like, pretty big, and I was listening to In Casino Out. Which I caught the tail and, end of this, by the way, because I was getting home, and I saw these tweets at the end, and I had to backtrack. So, oh, it was awesome. Continue. <laughs> yeah, so, like, you know, so I'm... I'm stoned, I'm listening to In Casino Out, and I'm like, fuck, At The Drive-In is such a great band. And, like, they were, like, the Led Zeppelin of emo. And I was like, oh, wait, like, what are some other classic rock corollaries with emo bands? So then I just, like, you know, started just brainstorming all these corollaries, you know, calling, like, Sunny Day Real Estate, The Beatles of emo, and, uh, you know, I just kind of... and Dashboard Professionals, the James Taylor of emo, and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> just something stupid to do on, like, I think it was, like, a Saturday night. You know, I was a loser at home. 
being stoned on my couch listening to you at the drive-in. <laughs> but, like, before I posted that first tweet, I actually Googled at the drive-in email. So I wanted to get a second opinion if they were an emo band. So I'm like, I think of them as an emo band. And your site came up. The, the, is this band emo? And you said, yes, they are. And I think you said they're one of your favorite bands. Yeah. So I was like, okay, well, this, this guy says they're emo, so I'm going to go with them being emo. Because it kind of seemed like maybe someone would call them post-hardcore or something. Yes. Or, you know, but... It's like they seem emo to me, and I don't know why. But well, it's, um, it, it was also you know who they toured with. What other what label were they on? What other relationships did they have in the scene? And it was connected to hardcore, which in turn was a lot of post bands. I mean, a lot of post hardcore bands toured with emo bands. I mean, one of the best tours I've ever seen was Lazy Kane at the Drive-In and Jimmy Eat World headlining on on the Clarity tour. Oh. And it was insane. I saw, when I saw Jimmy Eat World, um, I saw them in a gymnasium in Green Bay at, at, at the University of Wisconsin, Green Bay. I think it was like 2001. It was like the Bleed American tour and Sparta opened. Oh, yeah. Them. So, so that was after, so it was like, you know, obviously after I the drive-in broke up. And it's, I feel like Sparta started right away. And I don't know if they started before Mars Volta did, but, um, Maybe it was like 2002 or something, but um, but yeah, yeah, that, that, that's interesting. Yeah, they're another that's driving. You know, that's another band that you just feel like, man, they should have. You know, they they really should have been the Led Zeppelin of their era. They should have been a band that was together for ten years. I mean, that rec- album, that you know? yeah, that record. I mean, it was. I remember I was at CMJ. And again, I don't remember the year, um, and I, that is a sign of old age. Um, and I don't remember the year, but I remember being at Bowery Ballroom, and there was like a shitload of like limos and town cars in front to like go in to see them. And I just remember there was this frenzy, and it was it was a cool moment because you felt like it was one of yours from you know from the scene. And it was like, wow, they're going to make it. They're going to do this. Yeah. And for them to, I mean, that record's amazing, uh, the relationship of command. Um, and but it just seemed, it just seemed like it unraveled. Um, and I am happy they're they're back. I know that. Um, I mean, the guitar player from Engine Down is filling in for Jim. I understand that some people are pissed, but a lot of people didn't get to see them. And I remember the last time I saw, uh, I don't know if it was. I think it was Promise Ring or something, and there was a kid there that had never seen them. And this is what the f- seventh time that Promise Ring has come back, which is fine. I would yeah. come back whenever they want. But there's still a kid in that audience that got into them and went to see them and is stoked. And I think as we get older, we kind of forget that. But I, I think bring us back to the point of like running away from a word. Like the Promise Ring is definitely connected to that word. But there are still people finding out about your band because you're relevant and you're sort of mentioned in that handful of bands. Doesn't that stand for something? You should kind of be okay with it at that point. Or <laughs> I'm not saying they are or aren't, but like, shouldn't that be somewhat comfort? Like, hey, maybe I'll be attached to something instead of playing, you know, my local bar for the rest of my life. Yeah, in my experience, you know, no band really likes to be labeled. You know, there, there's very few labels that bands will sort of willingly accept. Like, punk is one of them. Like, 
punk bands will say, yeah, we're a punk band, and, you know, that they'll wave that flag proudly. You know, metal, like yep. metal bands will wave the metal flag, but, you know, I think in most cases, especially if it's a genre that, that like, seems trendy, like, bands don't want to be associated with it because they feel like when that trend goes down, as all trends do, they'll get dragged down with it, and they don't want that to happen. Now, emo, obviously, that's sort of come and gone as far as being trendy, but there is, like, this audience that has always been there. And, you know, in a way, it reminds me, and, you know, this is going to maybe strike you as an off-the-wall comparison, but... I'm really fascinated with, like, the jam band scene, mm-hmm. too. And, like, how that's another scene, you know, that's even less fashionable than emo. You know, like, jam bands get shit on more than any, you know, subculture and music, probably. But I grew up in Vermont, <laughs> and so I'm very familiar. <laughs> okay. Well, fish, then you know that, those dudes right? and fish that's lived in my hometown. <laughs> well... Oh, you're from Burlington? Yeah, I'm from Jericho, which is where Trey and a lot of the guys, they actually had their actual houses. And so our high school okay. thought it was like they, their their right to have like 20 jam bands. Um, <laughs> and uh, there is one thing that I probably told this story again before, but Trey gave, uh, which is the lead guitar player uh, for people that are uh, – that are smart and don't listen to them, but the uh, place for fish, but he gave tickets to lemon wheel, which was one of his like giant festivals in high school. And I was an asshole. And so, so they were like, Oh, Trey's giving tickets for us. Someone's we're going to do a giveaway for everybody in the senior class. And I stood up and said, if I win them, I'm going to burn them in front of all you hippies. <laughs> <laughs> my, dad, my dad did get a phone call. <laughs> okay. See, and that's a great moment for you of defiance against the man or, when you know, when the jam band. bands were actually just as fucked <laughs> well yeah i mean the, you know hip, you know I, yeah i know punks are supposed to hate hippies but like they're both on the outside yes you're right you know like, you're both you're both counterculture and you both get shit on by the mainstream all the time and the real kind of hardcore people just learn to ignore it and kind of create their own culture you know they create their own media you know there's like like when emo wasn't cool you know you had all these message boards you had all these like websites you had you know podcasts all this stuff people who are waving the flag even though it's not cool anymore it's the same thing with jam bands like there's tons of websites there's tons of message boards there's tape trading and all that stuff and they don't give a fuck if it's not cool and like i really respect that and i find that really interesting that there's this world that exists outside of sort of what the media like tells you what music is and what and what the media tells you is important and you know i mean it's a fascinating era that we're in right now because i think there was this idea that when the internet came along that like the monoculture was over or that like you know there would be no sort of common touchstones because there's all this diversity of, of internet coverage, but as far as, like, the music media is concerned, it's, like, more consolidated than ever. Like, Pitchfork and, you know, and Stereogum and Consequence of Sound, like, all these supposed, like, indie rock sites are covering pop music now and, like, doing it as much, if not more, than covering indie rock. And it, it really seems, like, sort of stifling in a way right now, which is why... I think the vitality of these underground scenes is so exciting. And in a way, I think that's, um, 
I feel like something is coming because to me this feels like the eighties must have felt. You know, where you had the media fixated on Michael Jackson and Madonna and Bruce Springsteen and Prince, but underneath that there was all this other stuff going on that was ignored but was really vital and had strong and the people who were into it really loved it. And eventually it just bubbled up and took over. I don't know if we live in that kind of world anymore, where that will happen, but I don't know. It's an interesting time. Yeah, it sure, is. I, I mean, the the jam band scene is actually, I mean, a really great comparison. And I, I mean, I lived through it in high school and going back home. And there's friends of mine and still back in Vermont that are in jam bands. And you're totally right. They do their own thing. They have a festival. It's, you know, a bunch of people show up. But you're right. It's kind of like maybe us in the media or at least more in these things were like, well, it's not, you know, big or it's not doing this, this. You kind of get sort of wrapped up in it. And then maybe their goals or their successes aren't what we're thinking they are. But then in their world, it is. Um, well, it's like, it's like Fish. They're playing two shows at Wrigley Field this summer, you know? And so there's a huge number of people that love that band, even though the average person probably couldn't name one Fish song, you know? Even though they, they know they hate Fish, but they don't know any of their music or, you know, don't know anything about them, really. It's just this idea that, like, well, it's a hippie band, so you got to hate hippies, and, and uh, you know, that's such an ingrained thing. Is it because of the drugs? I think, well, you know... Because I don't fair, do drugs. They're really annoying, you know? And it's not, it's not just the drugs. I think it's... I think there's this idea of, like, sanctimony with hippies, you know, this you know, sort of preachiness maybe that often seems sort of phony ultimately because uh, it does, that, that sort of lifestyle does seem to revolve around drugs and, and all that kind of thing. But, you know, it's like ultimately, it's, you know, we're talking about stereotypes, just like there's stereotypes with emo, there's stereotypes with the jam band thing too. So I think once you actually explore it a little bit, you find that this isn't true. So... Well, that's I actually, know. I mean, that, that, what, what you mentioned is actually one of my first points I wanted to talk about the book and, you know, the band, uh, the, the, sorry, the book that you wrote, your favorite band is killing me and everybody out there. It's sort of one of these books that I wasn't expecting this to happen because I read it end to end on a flight and I annoyed the hell out of the guy next to me because I just didn't put it down. Um, but it's this great kind of, uh, collection of, um, famous and in, infamous rivalries and kind of, relating them to things that were happening. And I mean, just the, the amount of references that I was laughing at loudly and annoying him as well um, were fantastic. Um, and one of the things you kind of mentioned is this default smart opinion that, you know, Nickelback sucks. Um, and sort of that same kind of thing. Every jam band sounds like this. There's this sort of default opinion that just gets permeated. Right. And I think that, I don't know if it's more common now, but there is this phenomenon with social media where people, um, you know, they're putting their opinions out there as a way to express themselves, just to define who they are in sort of the public sphere. So it becomes this thing like where you don't merely dislike something or something isn't merely your cup of tea, but you hate it, or it is the worst thing ever, or you come up with some clever, like, you know, hyperbole to, to knock something. And it becomes this performance, basically, where you're not only saying that you don't like this thing, 
Well, you're not only saying that you love this thing, but you are saying that this thing, this statement of taste is like an expression of who you are. And, 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 and the kind of person that hates jam bands or Nickelback or Coldplay or any other, you know, band that's fashionable to hate. Like, by saying that you hate this thing, you're really trying to say that, like, well, I'm the kind of person, I'm not the kind of person who would actually like this sort of thing. You know, like I'm not a hippie or I'm not like a wimpy Coldplay fan or, or whatever. Uh, you know, it's a statement about who you are ultimately. And it's the same thing when you talk about what you love and you say, oh, this is everything. You know, but people say that all the time now. Like, this is everything. Like, this, uh, you know, whatever. This, this, this Beyonce record is everything, you know. Um, <laughs> or, you know, this, this, uh, this tamale I'm eating is everything. Um, and it becomes a statement that you're trying to make. Uh, you know, so, and again, I don't think that's new necessarily, but I think it does get accentuated maybe a bit uh, because of the Internet and, and how people kind of create their personas online. So if and, I was... And, and curate, really. Because it, so if I was doing this in middle school, it would be like, this episode of G.I. Joe is everything. That's what I would have said on on Twitter. Yeah, or like you know, well, like when we were in middle school or high school, like you'd be wearing a, a t-shirt, like like a t-shirt of a band that you like. And if you're a punk fan, you would have like the right punk shirt on, like maybe you'd have a Ramon shirt on, or you'd have you know like a Dead Kennedy shirt on. And that was not only saying that you love the Dead Kennedys, you know, it's saying that sort of. But what it's mainly saying is that I am a guy who likes punk. And I'm everything that you associate with punk music. Like, I want you to project that onto me because I'm wearing a shirt. And I think people understand that intuitively when you're a kid. I think that, like, part of being a music fan, I think, at, at that age is figuring out what kind of person you are and putting it on like a costume. So I think that's a pretty common thing. Um, of course, I think there's an assumption that once you get out of high school, that that ends. But I don't think it does. I think that continues mm-hmm. well into your adulthood. Um, and, and maybe especially more now because our lives, you know, people live their lives on, online and that is sort of a public performance in a way because you are curi- you're curating who you are mm-hmm. on the internet. Like you're selecting the things that you think are important about you but also that you think will make you interesting. You know, the kind of person you want people to see, like, when they, when they see you. And, you know, music is a part of that. But so is politics and, you know, pictures of your pet and any number of things, you yeah. know. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, the, uh, but that sort of, de, you know, de, default thing and how, you know, things change over time too. I mean, the, one of the other, one of the great debates and, or things you, you talk about in the book is this sort of Nirvana versus Pearl Jam. And, you know, anybody in 92, that's, you know, you picked a side. Um, yeah. And it was, and also I think what, what, what you talk about and I think is amazing is sort of this, you know, over time, these assumptions and feelings and, what really lasts and what doesn't and what was really petty and what it's just it's really interesting to see the those two relationships you know eddie versus you know kurt and how these things were sort of blown up when in reality that maybe that really wasn't even the case yeah i mean there is something that recurs in a couple chapters where it's this uh 
where sort of in the shadow of the rivalries I'm talking about is this old classic idea, I guess, of you know, the easiest way to sum it up would be Burnout versus Fade Away. Yeah. You know, and I address that most explicitly. There's an Eric Class and Jimi Hendrix chapter. Which I love I that one. Both. That one is, that one's like, that's so fucking, that, if there's one you flip to people, flip to that one first because I love that. Because, yeah, like, what if he's still around? Like, would Hendrix be made fun of instead of revered? <laughs> exactly. Well, yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, there's this thing in music, and, and I think that was true of Nirvana and Pearl Jam to an extent that, like, if you burn out really quickly, there is a, there's obviously a romance to that. I mean, that's been talked about numerous times, you know, the, the romance of, like, dead rock stars. Uh, and, and that, there's a purity to that that's probably never going to be diluted, you know. Um, whereas the alternative to that, which is finding a way to survive and to age and to mature, that's never going to be as glamorous, but it is something that, obvi- that we as people who are still alive, like, that's something that we aspire to. Like, you may think that Jimi Hendrix is cooler than Eric Clapton, but, like, you don't want to end up like Jimi Hendrix. Like, Eric Clapton is the guy whose life you would want, you know? A guy who who did as many drugs as Hendrix did and, like, had, like, a pretty rough life and could have died, really, at the same time. I mean, he was doing heroin in the late, in the early 70s and was in, was in a terrible way. But, like, he lived, and Jimi Hendrix died. And, you know, you look at him now, and he's making these sort of pedestrian records, and it seems very conservative. Like, everything about Clapton seems very measured and conservative and uh, tasteful, you know? And, you know, boring, in other words. But he lived, you know? He found a way to live. And that's part of, of surviving, is that at some point in your life, you have to accept boredom, you know, you have to accept that you're going to be lame if you want to, you know, if you want to survive, because if you, if you, if you go the other way, uh, you're not going to last very long, um, and that's something that resonated for me with a lot of the rivalries I, I talked about, and also, you know, for me personally, you know, because I'm 38, um, you know, I'm a year and a half away from turning 40, these are things I think about all the time, you know, because I... Uh, I'm keenly aware that I'm not a kid anymore. You know, I'm not part of youth culture. You know, like, there's this thing that, like, people have, I think, where you know, it's kind of like when you watch sports and you always assume that the athletes are older than you. Oh, when, my God. That, you know, that happened two years ago for me. <laughs> I was like, holy <laughs> shit, I'm rooting on a 21-year-old. <laughs> exactly. Like, I look at LeBron James and I'm like, oh, that guy's older than me. Look at him. He's like huge. But I'm like, I'm like, I'm like probably like, I'm like eight years older than him. I'm like way older than him. Um, but in my mind, like I'm still, you know, in my twenties, you know, and coming to the realization that you're not, that you're older and that this shit just got really depressing. There is like a new generation coming up that you're not going to totally understand. You know, there's things that are happening in the culture that like, you know, like I'm open-minded and I want to understand things, but they're, you know, like, there are certain things about youth culture that I am incapable of understanding because I'm too old. And even if I, like, embedded myself in, like, a youth, you know, culture or something, like if I went to Coachella and I hung out with 21-year-olds all, all week and I, you know, and I studied their rituals and all that stuff, I still wouldn't get it because I'm an outsider just by virtue of my age and station in life. And, like, 
that's a weird thing to accept, you know, like you will never be cool yeah. anymore. That and you one. can't do anything about it. You know, it's not about being like young at heart. Like it doesn't matter because you are, you know, regardless of what you do or what you think, it, you're, you're never going to be 21. Like you're not that anymore. And, uh, I don't say that with sorrow, by the way. I, I love being my age. I would not want to be fucking 21 again. I was, I'm way happier now than I was at 21, but... Um, I love that still, my life... You know, I, 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 lo- I, I, I was going to say, I love that my life online didn't start until I started working. Um, uh, that's true, man. That's you know, so two, true. I got my phone. It was this, you know, Friendster and... Everyone's giggling on their in their headphones, but you know all these things. I mean, that did. It's not like I had. I wasn't Instagramming my lunch in freshman year. Um, well, it's I not was, even like Instagramming your lunch. Can you imagine going through a really bad breakup with social media? No. Like I, 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 you know, I cringe to think about like, what if I had the ability to post my feelings in the wake of like the worst breakup? And of how my much life? dumb shit yeah. would you have said? Exactly. <laughs> And shit that, like, doesn't go away. And, like, God forbid it goes viral, you know? And it's, like, there forever. I mean, I, I always feel bad for young writers who, uh, you know, get scooped up by, like, some big, you know, media company and they're getting paid peanuts to write, like, you know, 10 blog posts a day. And then they end up writing something embarrassing. And it, it goes viral and, like, they just get excoriated by, like, grizzled people in the media, you know, who, like, you know, want to point fingers and laugh. And it's like, I'm so glad the shitty things I wrote when I was 23 are, like, buried in an archive somewhere, you know, on, on actual newsprint. Oh, yeah, I have, I have some of the worst writing ever for a college newspaper, and I sometimes post them on the blog for people to laugh at. Like, I did a review of a Foo Fighters show, and I pretty much called it the worst thing on earth. <laughs> It's like, like there's all like those. I'm sure you have similar things where, but you you're like, I was like, oh, thank God, no one's gonna see yeah. that unless I, you know, take a photo of it or scan it. And I was actually looking at a photo that I took of CBGBs. I used to my first job was on Fourth Street, right around the corner from the Bowery, and I remember taking a photo with an actual camera and getting it developed on Eighth Street, and actually having the photo. I had to scan it in and then post it. And it was just right. all these steps that, um, just for that one photo. Yeah, it's so weird to be, like, old enough that you can reference, like, shitty technology that is totally outmoded that people today would not understand. I mean, I always think it's funny to think about, like, like I have a, I have a son who's going to be four in July. So, like, by the time he's old enough to, you know, understand, like, what I do for a living, you know, He's going to be totally confused about, like, my daily newspaper job. You know, the fact that I worked for a daily newspaper, and there was no real website at the time, and the paper, the news got printed once a day, and then the paper, and then it got printed on newsprint, and I got delivered to people's houses, like, four or five hours later. And uh, it was called the news, even though it was, like, you know, eight hours old at that point. And uh, not only did that system work, it was actually way more profitable than the system we have now. Like, newspapers made money hand over fist like when I entered the business. And then, 
shortly after I joined my first newspaper, you know, the industry really started going to hell. And I always joke that, like, my career ladder was set on fire, like, underneath me. And I had to crawl for my life. You know, to keep going. Because it was like, uh, you know, there was nowhere to go, man. It was, it was brutal. It's like, that, it's like that daily newspaper still exists that I work at, but it's, like, severely uh, depleted. Well, that's and then I would I would for it all weekly after that, and that's gone. That's so, so funny you say that because my first I remember my first week in the music industry, you know, someone was like, "Napster's here, we're all fucked." Apple just came out with this thing; people are downloading things for free. All the labels are like, it was like doomsday. And for some reason, yeah. sixteen years later, I'm still here, um, uh, you know, battered and bruised. But it, it, it was that same doomsday feeling that year, too. Yeah, I mean, early 2000s um, are like, I don't know if people have totally gotten over the, the trauma that happened between, like, 2000 and 2002 or three. Because, you know, like, between, like, the, the Bush blow election, 9-11, and, like, just... And, like, the tech bubble bursting... And, you know, there was just like a, a series of cataclysms happening, you know. So, you know, if I can put on my old man hat for a second, like when millennials complain about their lot in life, I'm just like, dude, when I was 23, like the world was like literally like falling apart. Like, you know, like elections were being stolen, you know, World Trade Center was coming down, you know, there were no jobs anywhere. It was just terrible. Um, it was a pretty fucked up period. I think all all the way around, it's a weird time to enter the job market. Yeah, I sure. remember. But yeah, like you say, like I'm still here too. So you know, we all ended up okay. We lived. We're survivors, man. <laughs> a lot of other people didn't make it. But yeah, I do think about that. Yeah. There was there was a ton of people that you know were let go, or their label was you know in any industry there was consolidation, and I know that happens constantly. But that time period, you're totally right. I mean, I was in New York for nine eleven. There was the blackout. There was you know the election stuff. There's and every sort of time period has that, but that was a lot of stuff within a couple years. In addition like to two this, wars that got started, yeah, and then know, the internet, and then the internet, and, yeah. it, and it was like that other piece where it was like now everything is you know not only things are getting faster, it's now instant. Um, that's the other part that was really interesting to me um but i still think it's yesterday and that's maybe you were kind of talking that earlier you're you're you were thinking that it's you know you're still in your 20s i just i still think it's yesterday and it's 100 percent not when i see what i was wearing what i was looking like um my hairstyle um it's it was absolutely ridiculous so i'm happy that it's 2016 it seems super long ago i mean i still feel the same age but like that period seems so long ago just because my life yeah changed so much. I was living by myself. I was like drinking all the time. You know, I was just like living this like, you know, decrepit lifestyle. You know, I, I would work. I, I didn't have to work until ten o'clock in the morning, so I could go stay out till like two in the morning and get eight hours of sleep and like roll into work. And uh, I was making twenty six grand, and I felt like I was super rich because. You beat me by a thousand. Nice yeah. job. I was making twenty five oh, really? first. Yeah, my twenty five was my first like real gig at a label, and I thought I was the cat's meow. I was like, because that oh, yeah. was that was a high paying job back then. Yeah, I felt like I was you know 
Chuba Capote after breakfast at Tiffany's, man. You know, just make it just plush. You know, wear the white suit and the fucking fedora and, you know, just uh, going on the town, man. Oh, that's funny. You know, there's a few other passages I love from the book that I want to tease people so they go and read it. The Beatles versus Stones, which I think was awesome. And my favorite reference is the Gotta Buy Voices joke, which is the Stones. They're, 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 they're the Stones when they're live. And then in the studio, they're the Beatles, which is fucking perfect. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's my favorite band of all time. Oh, really? Yeah. I got oh, to work. Yeah. I got to work a record at TVT, and I remember I was at this bar, and Bob Pollard came up to me and said, "What do you do at the label?" And I said, "I do college radio." And he said, "Get that fucking thing to number one." <laughs> <laughs> and I did. It was, was, that, had, was, was that due to collapse? Or it was. Drills? Yeah. It was. Oh, sorry. It was. It was isolation drills. Oh man, that's like one of my favorite albums. Of Chasing all time. Heather Crazy, Glad Girls, hits. Oh yeah, how's my drinking and glad to take class. That, I mean, that uh, tour was really big for me. Um, I saw them play in Indianapolis. It was December eighth, two thousand one. The greatest rock show I've ever seen. Really? It was like beer bottles up to your knees at the end of the show. Wow. Um, Arms around strangers. It was like it was unbelievable. They just sounded so fucking great. Like Jim McPherson was on drums still at that point. Um, that was a great lineup. I love like that was like Nate Farley, Doug Gillard. Yeah, uh, Doug Doug Gillard. Vibes was on bass. And um, I mean, I saw the classic era lineup when they did their reunion tour too, and that was amazing. Like when they did their their first reunion tour. They only played songs from the mid '90s, and like kind of by voices, like from '94 to '96, like which would be B Thousand, Alien Lanes, and Under the Bushes, Under the Stars. Like that is, um, like if there's a heaven, those would be those will be the albums that play on a loop, you know. Mm-hmm. And I'll be in a really cool bar that where I can be drunk but never get sick, and I'll just listen to those albums over and over again. Like that would be the pinnacle for me. Like I, it's such great memories of seeing that band so many times and following them and um yeah that really some of the happiest times of my life where i've been a guy that voices shows yeah bob did something really cool for me i was obviously a huge jimmy world fan back then and people you know called me emo boy and all that stuff back then but i actually i found out jim was a huge gbv fan and got him a signed record from bob um and sent it to him through a message board through a friend and it was just one of those like you know i I have to do it that that's his favorite band he he covered one of their songs you know what song did he cover um oh jim did um oh my god i'm blanking i'm blanking i'm i'm seeing the you know what's sad about this is that I'm I'm visualizing an iTunes list instead of a CD or something visual. I'm 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 visualizing text, and I cannot I cannot escrapulate what the uh, was it like Shocker and Gloomtown or something? I don't think so. Wait, I have a computer in front of me. Um, I can do it, but uh, you know, it's the I think do you, I think if anyone uh, is like, hey, are they going to talk about emo bands? Um, if you're gonna if you are going to do something, listen to uh, listen to uh, Gotta Buy Voices for me. See, like, I remember I saw Live 
of that band live. Yes, and, like, unfortunately. On the throwing hopper tour. Lightning crashes, everybody. It's crazy, because I, I think uh, T.J. Harvey opened up for him on that tour, which is insane. But, um, opened up for live. But um, I was just starting to get into Guided by Voices at that time. I think it was like 95, maybe. 95, 96. And uh, Alien Names was the first album I bought. And I loved it, and I was obsessed with it. I started buying all these other Guided by Voices records. And uh, Game of Pricks. So I'm at this live show, and I'm starting to like, I liked live, but I was like starting to like, not like bands like live anymore. I was starting to get more like indie rock and stuff. And uh, live played this acoustic set, and Ed Kowalczyk played Dusted, the song Dusted, which is on a, uh, on an EP, a guy in my voice is an EP called Fast Japanese Spin Cycle, which I just bought. So like when live played that song, it blew my mind. And I always think of that as being like a, kind of a big transitional moment for me as a music fan because it was like I went from live to Guided by Voices and like that concert was sort of like the the stepping stone moment maybe in a way the symbolic stepping stone moment oh that's awesome live covered Guided by Voices of all things oh that's rad and I and I figured out the song it was Game of Pricks oh okay that was a song that's a great song on, and that song's on Alien Lane so yeah. we tied it all together there <laughs> Come on, that's what we do. And then the exactly. uh, the uh, the other one is or two more. The Keith Richards dick joke. I had never heard that story before, and that was when oh. I woke. That's when I woke up. The guy sitting next to me on the plane because I was laughing. <laughs> well, you gotta read Keith Richards' book. That's like the rock and roll bible, man. I, I, you should you should have put down my book and. Picked up his book immediately after after seeing that joke. Uh, that's a great book. Cool. I definitely so, take that. Yeah. And he's then sure he's not really emo, but you know it still works. Still works for this podcast, I think. Right? Uh, totally, he, I, you know what? I'll I'll call my people. They'll call his people. We'll get it done. <laughs> and then the other one is I never get to talk about TV. Um, I used then this is a little setup, and I, I think your your thing about Conan and Jay Leno was something really fascinating. But the, to kind of to to kind of set it up is that when I when I was growing up, I loved late night TV. I loved the monologue. I loved the musical guest. I would stay up, and obviously, growing up, I didn't have the you know you didn't have the guide to tell you what was on the TV, and so I used to be. My dad had like we had cable, and I. It was channel three and five that was Leno and Letterman. And I actually, I remember when it was, um, I stayed up and I was able to see Johnny Carson, but um, uh, the mostly Leno and Letterman. And I remember being able to time back and forth between the channels to figure out who was on each show. So I would know when Letterman would start and post the first guest. I would flip to Leno, their first guest, and back and forth, and I would be able to figure out, oh, well, Leno's got X band. I'll stay and watch him. Or And, and I just I kind of loved that back and forth battle that they had. And I think this one with Conan, I never really thought about this because I was on Team Coco, you know, when all that sort of shit went down, when Leno had the 10 o'clock show. And just kind of setting this up a little bit, I love that sort of thought of what would have happened if he just stayed and sucked it up. Would he be the right. host of the Tonight Show? Right. Well, and you know, you talk about uh, late night TV, and I had a similar thing when in the nineties. I loved David Letterman. Even starting in the late eighties, I'd watched Letterman 
when he was still on NBC, uh, late night with David Letterman, and then, you know, when he went to CBS to do the late show, and, there, and I think that was like 93 or something. But, you know, now I don't really watch late night TV all that much, and um, it would, uh, so, like, I don't, it's like, like, when that whole kind of Conan Leno thing, Leno thing was going on, I, uh, I reflexively sided with Conan because I liked Conan. I think he's funnier than Jay Leno, obviously. That's not saying much, but, you know, just generationally, it seemed like if you're under 50, like, you had to side with Conan because it, was, it did turn into this sort of generational battle between uh, Conan and, like, Leno, who is, like, this symbol of, like, baby boomer hegemon, basically, in the culture, like, baby boomers who, like, won't let go of their control of the culture, you know, like, Leno was kind of literally doing that with The Tonight Show. It seemed like, it's time for you to go. Like, why can't you just go and, like, let our generation take over? Um, and by the way, I should mention that this all comes up in the Pink Floyd chapter. I read a chapter yes. about Roger Waters versus the rest of Pink Floyd, and there's an analogy I make between Roger Waters and David Gilmore and Jay Leno and Conan O'Brien. And that might sound weird when I say it on this podcast, but I think when you read the chapter, it'll make sense. That's my hope, anyway. Um, but it anyway, that, so that, that's the link. Uh, that's why I'm talking about this late night thing. Um, but, yeah, I mean, just the intrigue of that battle was way more interesting to me than, like, the actual shows. And, like, when Jim Leno finally retired, I was kind of sad because he was, like, this great heel for so long. And he sort of single-handedly kept me interested in a lot of these shows, you know, longer than I would have been normally, just because, like, all the backstage wrangling over who was going to host, I just ate that up. And, you know, like, Bill Carter wrote two books about it, like The Late Shift in the 90s, and then he wrote The War for Late Night uh, in, like, 2011 or so. And it was, like, a TV movie about it on HBO. I don't know if you ever saw that, The Late Shift. Yeah. I've seen that movie, like, probably ten times. I love that movie. Um, so now, I mean, it seems kind of boring late night. You know? Well, everyone, it's also, if you miss anything. Each other now. But if you miss What's anything, if, 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 if you miss a clip, oh, Steve, did you see last night, blah, blah, blah. Okay, I'll send you the link. It was, right. it, it's, it's, I don't, I don't have to stay up and watch. Right. Well, and it, 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 it seems like too, it's usually like, oh, James Corden is doing karaoke in his car with uh, Adele, you know, like that, that's sort of like the viral bits now, like he's, or Jimmy Fallon is, uh, you know, spitting water in the face of uh, Channing Tatum, you know, like that's sort of like the bits or, or he goes in the opposite direction where it's, uh, uh, um, who's that guy on HBO? I can't remember his name. The guy who always eviscerates Trump. Like, you always see, like, uh, the British guy. I can't, uh, blanking on his name. Last totally week tonight with, him. um, why am I, why are we so bad tonight? So, John Oliver. Huh? Wow. You know why? John Oliver, huh? Because we're old. Okay. I don't know. We're old, apparently. Yeah, anyway, it'll be, like, John Oliver totally eviscerated Donald Trump, you know, and, those clips can be harder to watch because it's like 15 minutes long and you don't really have 15 minutes to watch John Oliver eviscerating Donald Trump all the time. But, um, but yeah, you're right. I mean, that is how people experience late night shows. 
Um, and I don't know. I mean, there's some good ones. Like I like, like when I when I watch Seth Meyers show, I like him. I think he's funny, and, uh, 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 and he blurred my book. So I definitely love Seth Meyers uh, for that. And uh, but it's weird. Like the Daily Show, they used to be so essential. Like you never hear about the Daily Show anymore. That just has totally fallen off the face of the planet. Um, Colbert too. I don't know if you've seen his show. He seems like he's trying really hard. Uh, yeah, it's 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 like to me. Like, it's like trying too hard. Yeah, it's like it's definitely forced. I mean, it's you. I can't tell if it's him or not because he was always yeah. in, he was always in persona on the other or in the you know in the in, in character, and so I can't tell if this is him or not. Well, he came out. I'm, I, I saw like the first week of shows. Probably like most people. Like yeah, you, you watch know, the first week. Watch, you're right because you know you're curious and then and then you then you stop. But like. It seemed like you tried so hard to be like happy and like be so friendly and and that seems to be the tone of like a lot of late night shows now like where everyone's a nice guy like I remember uh, Trevor Noah the new host of the Daily Show like he comes out he's always smiling he's so upbeat and uh, maybe this was the Gen Xer in me but I'm like where's the cranky asshole like David Letterman was a cranky asshole John Stewart kind of had the cranky asshole edge to him. You know, like, I want, like, a cynical alternative to, like, a lot of these, like... I always thought Letterman... Yeah, I always thought Letterman asked the questions I wanted to ask. Or at least was being snarky enough that got me to giggle. Leno asked everything that the publicist asked him to ask. Um, You know, Kimmel's a little close. I know he he kind of fucks with guests sometimes, or at least, you know, asks some things that are a little bit different. Um, right, and I love that about Letterman that he would just he would you're in this part where you're supposed to promo your book or you're promoing your uh, you know thing, and he's asking you something a little serious. And I always think back then, how many video, how many YouTube clips would he have made versus Leno? Right, and I think he would have been way more because Leno is this the the Today Show question, you know. Right. Well, like Letterman too had some incredible guests. Like he had like Captain Beefheart was on his show, and mm-hmm. like um, Harvey Pekar was on his show. You know, just all these sort of these people that certainly like the average person probably didn't know who they were, but like they were booked because they were interesting. And you know, and probably too, you know, they, they, you know, I know there was an edict I think at that time that like the the, the like late night with David Letterman they couldn't book the same guest that Johnny Carson was getting. So they were sort of forced to go off the beaten path. But, you know, I, I think about that now, you know, with... Musical uh, guests, too. We're, 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 but yeah, musical guests, exactly. Like, you know, Letter- R.E.M. Yeah, yeah like, show. and Letterman would, like, crack a joke or, like, you know, say something. I mean, there was that one YouTube clip of like every time he talks about the drums, um, there's like 50 times where he has this comment. But like, you know, it just, I felt that if he said it was awesome or that moment that he stood up and said, you know, that he liked it, that was actually a big deal. And that meant something that at that time, that was a great PR outlet. And so when he got up and sort of a, he like a, he kind of like approved you. Leno's is just like, yeah, great record. Thanks for coming. <laughs> well, I just like the idea of like there being a show on television where there's going to be guests that you haven't heard of. Yep. But like if you, if, if you stick in there, if you, you know, if you hang in, 
you're going to be surprised because this is a really interesting, you know, guest or a great band. But, you know, you have to have faith and, like, yeah, you may not know who they are. You know, there may be a moment, like, where you're not totally sure of what you're seeing. And, uh, you know, it is funny because you feel like we have so many media choices now that that should be more common than it is, and I don't know if it is. I, I, I feel like instead of there being more diversity, that we get fed more of the same. And, uh... Well, there's those stories about, yeah. you know, the the places that if it's BuzzFeed or a Vice that they get Procter & Gamble as a sponsor and then all of a sudden magically articles that are, you know, saying bad about their products magically go away or an article is changed yeah. or, you know, just those type of things. It just seems like, every, you know, it's this, you're right, it's, it, yes, there's GE doesn't own or GE isn't the only, you know, the, yes, they own CBS, but they you know, it's not like they're affecting a lot of other things. It seems like the advertisers are more affecting more places than just the small outlets that we had. Does that make sense? Well, it's advertising, but, you know, people have to accept responsibility, too, for how the media is. I mean, yeah. part of the reason why that exists is that people don't want to pay for anything. So, you know, that opens it up for corporations to control content like that because, these, you know, I work in the media... I need to make a paycheck. Yeah. You know, we need to make a living. So if if the if the reader isn't going to pay for anything, well, you know, then Procter and Gamble has to pay for it, and then yeah, maybe a few sponsored content to survive. You know, um, the other thing too is that, like, I, you know, I don't know. I try I try not to be cynical about this because I I believe that there are always people who are adventurous and, and want something that's real and exciting and not just the status quo. Um, but it does sometimes feel like there's not enough of those people to really move the needle. And that, and those shows or those things that bubble up that offer you interesting things, they're not going to exist if they're not supported. You know, people have to show up for them. And if you are just going to click on bullshit all the time, well, you know, then you're going to get more bullshit. And you can blame media companies for that, but it's ultimately the responsibility of individuals to make smart choices with what they consume, you know. Um, or else, you know, I mean, you vote with your dollars, you vote with your clicks, and if you're voting for the wrong stuff, you're going to keep getting the wrong stuff, so... I don't know. I feel like I'm being preachy here. I don't want to get too preachy. On don't worry podcast. about it. Don't worry. Everyone's used to it. <laughs> Everyone's used to it. You should hear me. I, I get all angry. No. The, I, speaking of speaking of editorial, yes, buy my book, please. I want you to buy my book. And, uh, <laughs> so yeah. I'm going to give you the. I'm going to give you. All right, here we go. I'm going to do the Jay Leno for you. All right, everybody. This book is awesome. I read it on a plane. Uh, it is super great as a music fan as someone in the is the mid and late 30s this is right in your wheelhouse like we, we, we didn't get to get into this but you referenced the VMAs the MTV VMAs now younger kids there, there was a show that actually meant something and it wasn't just Miley Cyrus uh, doing crazy things but it was you know what was it 93 that was like one of the most insane you know uh, TV shows and people were talking about it. There's all these great things, so you should definitely check out the book. Uh, and it's well worth your time. 
Well, thank you for saying that, and, and thanks for having me on. This was a, a lot of fun. Up emo fans, thank you for listening to this podcast over the last nine plus years. Or if it's your first time, welcome. It has flown by, and I appreciate each and every one of you for listening. And for this current episode you're about to hear, I do have a favor of you. I have some books out right now called Anthology of Emo, and Volume Two was released last fall. I really think you'll dig it if you haven't heard of them. It features guests from the podcast, including Jim Atkins from Jimmy Eat World, Chris Conley from Saves the Day, Travis Shuttle from Piebald, and John Bunch from Sensefield. I've also reprinted volume one so you can order both check out the diy publishing at anthologyofemo.com